word today. Today we continue a sermon series through the book of Matthew, chapter 4, in verses 18 and 19. I'm going to ask that you would follow along with me. This is what the word of God says. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. This is the words of God. All right, you can be seated this morning. Within these five verses of Scripture, um, I, again, believe that there's a huge paradox when I read these passages. Um, There is both something that is completely and utter paralyzing and terrifying that is deeply contrasted with the most amazing and gracious and merciful passage of Scripture. This idea and this phrase, if you have your own Bible in front of you, I want you to mark it, circle it, underline it, whatever you do in your Bible. This term, follow me, follow me. Two relatively small words that carry for us enormous weight. Notice that Jesus does not consider to these Two sets of brothers. He does not ask them to consider this statement. He does not ask them to think about it or if their schedule permits to consider. No, Jesus said these two words among thousands of others. Follow me. As we've seen over the, ca- the last several weeks as Pastor Justin has done a phenomenal job of showing the baton passing from John the Baptist and this calling of sinners to repentance and saying that the kingdom of God is at hand. Now John is taking away and the baton passes to Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The forerunner has come preparing the way of the Lord and now the King has come. Jesus begins his ministry declaring the same words that John was declaring as we see in verse 17. From that time Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now that may not mean much to you now, but as a preacher that means a lot to us. That means that we can repeat the same sermons over and over and over and over again as John the Baptist did and as we will see Jesus do. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. If anyone could declare this, it was Jesus, right? Because he is the king. He sits on the throne of his kingdom and Jesus is now coming to this world to turn it upside down. Jesus was calling his people to a a new way of living, living. Jesus was calling them to repent, which was equivalent to this idea of complete abandonment to the way in which they used to live. 
Matthew tells us in 4.12 that Jesus began preaching his preaching ministry in Galilee. And so you've got um, the Sea of Galilee and below that um, is the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee runs into the Dead Sea and, and in that Jesus begins his preaching ministry there. And the Bible tells us in the passage that we read that Jesus is at the sea. He's at the lake. I like that kind of Jesus because that's one of my favorite places to be as well. And Jesus is walking past this sea and he comes across two sets of brothers who were, as John's gospel would tell us, are from Bethsaida which the English transformation of that or, or the English um, wording for that literally means fish town or fishton, okay? So Bethsaida is believed to be a, a city or a village uh, during this time right on the Sea of Galilee that existed from about 60 to 100 folks. And that these four men, along with another disciple that we meet later, his name is Philip, are all from this small fishing village. So they would have grown up with each other. They would have known one another. They would have hung out. They would have, I don't know, you know, played Jewish tag with one another. Whatever they did as Jewish kids, they would have grown up in the same village as Jewish people and would later become fishermen like their fathers or like most of the men within this city. So Jesus is walking by the sea, and he notices these men, and like the pastor says, he says, follow me. And we read that, they drop their nets, and they go about their business. Except, this is why it's important for us to be students of God's Word. It's crucial for us to be doing that, to studying God's Word, to, to really see what is happening in this. We cannot forget that Jesus was a Jew, and their early followers were all Jewish. Moses, guys remember the hymn? Moses in the Old Testament, or, or majority of the Old Testament, was written by Moses. It's the first five books of the Bible are called the Torah. If you really want to church it up or sound smart, say Torah. All right, you got to put that at the end of it. But Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were all written through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the prophet Moses. And that is how we got those five books. These books were life to the Jews. There was a common statement that was often used in early Judaism that said that these books were the way, the truth, and the life. They believed in them. They loved them. They consumed them. They believed that they literally were the words of God. The Torah, it means teachings or simply the way. Everything in their lives revolved around this idea of knowing, learning, and living out these words and these books. Why? Because they were the word of God. See, in early Judaism, to be a, an authentic and orthodox Jew, uh, really committed, not a cultural Jew like cultural Christianity, but like a, a true believer in Yahweh, that he is the only one true God, a practicing Jew, two things was held in great value for these groups of people. The first thing was ultimately, like I mentioned, was the word of God. You know that 
unlike us who can look at our phones and get every translation that you want, or you've got, you know, 30 different Bibles at the house. If your grandparents, if you knew them growing up and you go to their house, they got the big Bible with Jesus' picture on the front of it. And sometimes it even says the family Bible on it. For we have tons of access to God's Word. But not for these early Jewish or just the Jews in general. There's typically about one scroll per village. And you would go to synagogue where that was, and a rabbi would come and he would open up that scroll. And many times it was there are historical accounts where people would often touch their lips and touch the scroll because they wanted the word of God as, as sweet as honey and they wanted it to be on their lips. All right? You can almost imagine they get out their Bibles and all of a sudden people are just like, oh, it's the word of God. They would often, they would, there are accounts where different teachers, Bible teachers will tell you um, that they would often hold it up and open it up to show them that it was, had not changed. The words were still on the page. They had such a high regard. And how many of us have a dashboard Bible? You know what a dashboard Bible is? It's the Bible you keep in your car, so you always have it for church. Right? And yet for these people, it was a sacred, sacred thing. Whenever a Bible that I find gets destroyed or has ripped pages out of it, I don't know about you, I know I'm weird, but I always don't know what to do with it. Because I can't imagine tossing it in the trash. I, I, I don't know what to, so I end up keeping it, and I have all these halfway destroyed Bibles all over our house, because I don't know what to do. They're, it's... It's still the word of God. It is the power of God. He spoke these things. These are things that, that he wanted them and he wanted us to know. And so there should be great respect and reverence for that word. And for these early Jewish people, or all the Jews, it, the word of God was something of great value and is extremely rich to them. The second thing that they held of great value was community. They understood that it took a village to take care of one another, that, that Judaism was best seen in God's word and with others. There was no idea of separation. And yet for us, what do we see? Again, we have multiple translations. Many of us, you know, very rarely ever really dig into this book. And we are, especially in America, all about individualism. Yet for the Jews, this was not the case. This is not what they believed. So if these teachings are the best way to live, and if they are the word of God, then when is the best time for you and I to start learning them? As a kid, as a child. You know, when do we start elementary school or preschool? Around the ages of four, five, six years of age. This wasn't something where you could just send your kids off to a public setting. They didn't really have those to, to the same extent that we now have them, like we're standing in right now. You would often, again, it was done inside community, and it was all centered around the Torah, the Word of God. Around six years of age, you would have started attending school. And the, the way that you would have learned your letters was, was not reading C-Spot Run, but it would have been reading Genesis 1-1 and often copying the letters in Hebrew. 
This is the way that you learn to read, the way that you learn to write. All of these things were surrounded by what? The Torah, the Word of God, the first five books of the Bible. This school, this first level of school was called Bet Sefer, which means the house of the book. And they would stay in this small school setting, both boys and girls, until they were about 10 years old, learning and copying the first five books of the Bible over and over and over. Imagine by the age that you are 10 years old that you have Genesis to Deuteronomy memorized. Right? We talk about scripture memorization right now. All of y'all are sweating. We're all like, oh, I can't do that. Jesus wept. I know that one, right? I mean, these Six to ten years of age, most Jewish kids inside of Bet Sefer would learn, memorize, because they couldn't go home with the Torah. They, they would memorize these books of the Bible. They knew them by heart because it was life. Around ten or so, uh, a girl's education would end. I'm sorry, ladies. She would go home, and this is what she would begin to learn. She would begin to learn if her mother had a trade, she would begin to learn her mother's trade. If, um, she would also learn what it meant to be a good Jewish godly wife. She would learn how to cook, how to clean, how to raise children at the age of 10 or so, because in just a few years, she would be married, and that would be her purpose in life, was to be a wife. And to raise kids. Her job, which I think is an honorable job, is to take care of the home. And this is what Jewish girls would often, or this is what they would do. Their, their things would end. We see this in Mary, right? By the time that she's, I don't know, 13, 14 years of age, she's being betrothed to Joseph to be married. She's learned how to, she went to school till she was probably 10 years old. Got out. She's been learning from her mama how to be a mama. And now she's betrothed to Joseph. This is the cycle for young ladies. For young men, most of them, their education would also end. But for, for those students who showed great intelligence, who had the smarts and the passion, they would be allowed to continue on in their education. This was a, another level of of education, kind of a second level of education called Bet Talmud, which means the house of learning. So if you were the best and the brightest inside of your, tenth gr- or your class when you were 10 years old and you had a passion to continue to study God's word in a real passionate, intellectual, and practical way, then you were encouraged to go on in your education. If you weren't the best and the brightest, then you as a young man were also sent home and whatever your daddy did, that's what you learned how to do. So if your daddy was a carpenter, guess what you became? You started learning at the age of 10 how to be a carpenter. One day you would be the carpenter in the village. If your daddy was a, a fisherman, you would go and learn what it meant to be a fisherman. If your daddy was a doctor, a lawyer, whatever he was, you became alongside of him and walked alongside of him until he passed on learning to do exactly what your dad did. But in Bet Talmud, the house of learning, these Great students, these very smart and bright and passionate students, they would memorize the rest of the Old Testament. Right? So Genesis 
through the rest of the Old Testament, you'd have memorized. Like somebody could quote you on it. Like what's, you know, Zephaniah 1.1 say? And you could spit it off because you had it memorized. It all of the Old Testament memorized because you were dedicated to this. You wanted this. You wanted to, to know God. You wanted to know his word. This was your greatest pursuit. At the age of about 14 to 15, most young men's, their education at that second level would also come to an end. For many of them, they at that moment, though they knew all of the Old Testament, though they showed some promise, they still weren't the brightest and the best. So they would go at that age, go learn how to be a carpenter, go learn how to be a fisherman, go learn how to be a doctor, a lawyer, whatever your daddy does, that is now what you will become. But the best of the best, the cream of the crop, the all-stars, the people who always got picked first to play kickball, those dudes, okay? The people who graduate and after they, you know, they walk in the line, you have to stand there and wait because they're saying something, something loudy, loudy, you know, cum loudy, loudy, this, and they like tassels hanging all over them, that those people, those gentlemen, those men could pursue one more level of education. The best and the brightest, the most passionate, could go on. In this, these students would continue on, and they would seek out these teachers of the Bible, of the Old Testament, called rabbis. Jesus was not the first rabbi. There have been hundreds of of rabbis. Discipleship and that term is not new to Jesus. Jesus did not coin that idea. But everyone who was a Jew was not considered a disciple. A disciple were only these top men, these top young men, these teenagers who were the brightest, the smartest, and the most passionate. They had learned all of the Old Testament. They loved the Word of God. They could quote it backwards, forwards. They could explain it. They could interpret it. And they would finally go to one of the many rabbis at the time, and they would say to that rabbi, I want to follow after you. I believe that I can learn from you. I believe that I can live as you live. I believe that I can have intimacy with God like you have intimacy with him. This level of schooling was called Bet Midrash. It means the house of study. And in that, as this rabbi would be asked by a student if he could be his disciple. Over the course of some time, that rabbi would say, all right, here's the deal, um, there will be a season of testing here. And so this rabbi could ask him anything about the Old Testament. He could ask him about interpretation. He could ask him about politics. He could watch this young teenage man and his way of life. And, and, and if he wasn't good enough, which was the majority of them, he would look at that young man who's been in this education for all of these years and he would say, you need to go home to your dad. You need to go home. This is not the way of life for you. You need to go be a carpenter. You need to go be a fisherman, a doctor, lawyer. Whatever your daddy does, but you need to leave from me. And you need to go and do what they do. For the best, for the brightest, 
for the smartest, for the most passionate, those filled with charisma and zeal. A rabbi, if he believed that that kid could do it and saw something within him, he would often look at that kid, that teenage boy, and he would say, all right, come and follow me. Follow me. The teenage boy would leave his father and mother. He would leave his family. He would leave the town that he grew up in, and he would devote his life to doing whatever that rabbi did. He would truly follow after the rabbi. See, wherever the rabbi went, the student went. Whatever the teacher did, the student did. This was a a sign of of true devotion. The, The student never wanted to be outside of the presence of his rabbi, of his teacher. This is important for us to understand, though, because this is not simply a relationship where it is the the transferring of information. But it is is literally speaking into this young man and saying, come follow after me. Come live like me. Come shadow me. In essence, I, I am your new dad. One of the common Jewish statements during this time was your dad kind of brought you into this world, but your rabbi will lead you in the life that is to come. This was an illustration of great intimacy between this teenage man and this sage or this rabbi, this great teacher. You were supposed to follow so close to your rabbi that one of the common statements was was this, is to cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi's feet. Obviously, they're in the desert area. They're working. They're wearing sandals, these sorts of things, and they're walking around all over the place. And in walking around all over the place, the rabbi would often, they would always lead out and like follow the leader. His disciples would be behind them. And wherever he walked, the dust from his feet would kick up in the air and land on his disciples. This was not something that you quickly wanted to brush off. This was actually a badge of honor for you as a disciple. See, this is something intimate. It is something that that binds this relationship. It's a new relationship. You, you give up. You abandon. It, it doesn't mean that you don't have at all a relationship, but you leave your family. Where he sleeps, you sleep. Where he goes, you go. It was, again, more than just this transferring of, I know what this means, and so I'm going to share that with you. It was more than just the swelling of the brain. It was more than just the transferring of information. It was a transferring of life. See, though many Jews faithfully believed and knew the writings of the Old Testament and attended synagogue, they were not considered a disciple. A disciple was only those special few who made it through this rigorous testing and were allowed to follow the rabbi. See, following the rabbi was the greatest honor of all Jewish boys. It, it wasn't to be the star athlete. 
It wasn't to be the fireman or the policeman. It wasn't to be president of the United States. For these Jewish family, because God's word is number one and inside that community is number two, for a Jewish boy and for his family to be able to be a disciple of a rabbi was the penultimate. It was the greatest for that kid is what you long to be for. It's imagining putting that into our perspective of, of young boys having their own rooms. Maybe they probably didn't, but rolling out posters. And instead of those being Michael Jordan, it being a teacher. Holding a book, right? It's before Comic Con was cool, all right? Like, this sort of setting, this is what you long to be. A student of God's word, to follow the teacher, to live like this great, respected rabbi that is before me. When the disciple followed his rabbi, they understood they were leaving everything behind. They were leaving, to some degree, their family. They were leaving their comfort, their security of home, their profession. They left certainty, the certainty of a hot meal, a, a place to lay their heads, or even their homes. In a great book called Sitting at the Feet of Rabbi Jesus, it says this, To follow the rabbi meant something other than sitting in a classroom and absorbing his lectures. Rather, it involved a literal kind of following in which disciples often traveled with, lived with, and imitated their rabbis, uh, learning not only from what they said, but from what they did, from their reactions to everyday life as well as from the manner in which they lived. The task of the disciple was to become as much like the rabbi as possible. They wanted to be him. They wanted to be him. This is the concept of what it means to be a rabbi and to be a disciple as Jesus comes on to the scene. So let's go back to our text. Verse 18, Jesus is walking by the Sea of Galilee. He saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, they saw two brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called to them immediately. They left their boat, the boat, and their father and followed him. So Jesus, this, this morning, is, is, is walking past the Sea of Galilee. He, he sees Peter and Andrew. He sees James and John. He sees them. And, and what are these guys doing? That's where you talk back. Good. Thank you. Baptist. Awesome. All right. So they're fishing. They're fishing. What is the significance of this? What is the significance of these, these men fishing? What does this reveal about these men? And maybe this is the reason why I love this passage of Scripture. It means this. Somewhere along the way, these men's education ended. It means they either weren't the smart enough, or they didn't have the degree of passion needed to be accepted 
by one of the other rabbis. It's also believed, and this totally changes your picture of the Last Supper, or of any really bad Christmas play or Easter play you've been in, is that it's believed by most scholarship that I can find that it also reveals that the twelve disciples were teenagers. Not these old dudes with big gray beards, right? Not this. They couldn't do this yet. It takes a man to do this, all right? They couldn't do that necessarily yet. Had a little peach fuzz. But it totally changes their perspective because even what are, what are two of these guys, who are they with? They're with their daddy. Okay, and, and they're fishing. They have picked up whatever their dads were probably doing, and they have learned that trade. It's, it's believed later on, and there's some, some examples of why they believe that this is true, but it's believed that Peter was the oldest of all of the disciples because there's even that exchange in the Gospels where, where they're talking about taxes, and, and Jesus tells um, Peter, it's time to pay the taxes. You kind of have this whole dialogue, and, and Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, go fishing, and when you go, you're going to catch a fish, and when you open up that fish, you're going to open it up, and a coin is going to be in there. Pay our taxes with that. Well, it was only enough coinage to pay two men's taxes. Scholars believe that they paid Jesus's and Peter's. The rest of the men, because they were too young, didn't have to pay taxes yet. So it changes this picture that we have of these disciples. Now, I did youth ministry for a long time. I can't imagine what that was like. If you have worked with teenagers at all, but it paints a beautiful picture of many of the dialogues that we now have throughout Scripture. Hey, who's going to be greatest? I'm the greatest. Who's going to be first? I'm going to be first. Right? Sounds like teenage boys all jockeying for what for position even mama shows up and says hey Jesus you know my boys they've been with you a long time when you go to heaven they should be standing next to you I mean if you work in the school system you know those parents so over the course, as we go through the rest of this sermon series, we're going to begin to see a picture and a dialogue and this interesting narrative that is taking place as, as Jesus is walking along and behind him are these young men, really young men, who, who don't have it all together. But it, it's, it's believed that, that Jesus looks at these young men fishing with their dad they're, they're not rich, but they are wealthy enough to have a boat. Okay, so we're talking about poverty here, but we're not talking about extreme poverty for these few men here. They have a, they have a business, okay? In a foreign country, in some of the foreign countries I've recently visited, most of the people, are, they're hustling all day. That means you don't really have a, a job at a place but you have creating your own job. It's like, you, you know, you buy a piece of wood coal for, you know, five cents, and you want to sell it to somebody for ten cents. That's your job. But not these men. They have a boat. James, John have a boat with their dad. Many of the times we'll see Jesus on a boat. It's, it's believed that a lot of times it's this boat that they're talking about. So poor, but not extreme poverty. 
per se. These men have a job. So they, they're wealthy enough to have a boat. They, they own their own business. They're not the cream of the cop, crop. They, they were probably picked last in a lot of things. They, they weren't on the honor roll, the principal's list, or, or graduate with honors. They were fishermen like their dad and probably their grandfather. And unless something miraculous happened from them, from the time they were a teenager until they died, they would be fishermen. I love to fish. It's awesome. Okay? Um, I, I've fished a lot with my father-in-law, with my brother-in-law, and we've, we've used, it's believed that these were probably round casting nets, and, and Larry and, and Casey and I will go out to Barron River, and Larry and Kay, Casey are the only people I know how to catch fish on Barron River, so I go with them, and so we go out there, and we will, in the middle of the night, put lights on the boat, and Casey gets out a casting net, and he takes that casting net because there are certain kind of minnows, you can ask him later, that, that come up and are drawn, that striper and, and hybrid bass like to eat. And so we'll, he'll draw them up, and then I've watched Casey because I'm not skilled. I, almost, I have one. I almost brought it today. And he'll take that thing, and like a little ballerina, and he'll flip that thing out there, and it just goes into this. It's like all wadded up, and then he throws it out there a certain way, and it comes out in this big circle lands on all those minnows, he picks it up, and then that's our bait for fishing. I love doing that. But doing that every day would be terrible. It would be terrible. When it becomes a job, it's no longer fun. This is the way these people are eating. This is the way they're making their livelihood. They're covered in, in fish guts and all of these sorts of things, but at least they had a job. And for the rest of the life, and I'm not saying that this is a, tor- a terrible, terrible upbringing for these young men. It could be a, probably a lot worse for them, especially during this time. But for the most part, you get the idea. From the time you're a teenager to the time you die, what do you do every day? Fish. Unless something happens. Yet on this day, a a divine appointment takes place. They're casting their nets, some of them, James and John, they're fixing their nets. But on this particular day, after probably a long night of fishing, God in the flesh, Jesus himself, steps into the scene of their existence and into their lives. And he looks at these young teenage boys who all their life is planned out before them, and he looks at them, those who were left out, those who were not the best, those who were not voted most likely to succeed or the smartest, but probably most likely to go to jail. These group of kids, these group of young men, he looks at them in that sovereign moment on that specific day, making imprints in the sand that he sovereignly chose to be indebted to the very depth that he declared from God on high. And he says to those young men, you follow me. You follow me. That is a strong wording. Notice what is the response in both of these episodes. If you have your own Bible, you will see this all throughout the book of Matthew. He loves this word. 
Like I love the word essentially. My daughter tells me all the time, every time I hear you preach, you say the word essentially, or the reality is a bunch of times. Well, it's true. The reality is essentially what is taking place here. The Bible tells us in verse 20 and in verse 22, when Jesus calls them, what is their response? Immediately. Drop the nets. Immediately. Matthew uses that word over and over and over in his gospel. He loves that word. Immediately. The Bible tells us immediately. Immediately in verse 20. They left their nets and followed him. Verse 22. Immediately they left the boat and their who? Daddy. Their father and followed after Jesus. See, ladies and gentlemen, when Jesus says to follow me, it is not passive, but it is potent. It is not a suggestion. It is the, what we call in a doctrinal, to dig a little deeper here this morning, this is what we call in, in theological terms the effectual call of God. See, when God wants you, you respond in the way that God would have for you. This is the effectual call. When God says come or when God says let there be light, light has no choice but to respond by being light. Where God deems to be darkness, there will be darkness. Where God deems to be light, there will be light. And when God shows up on your shore and says, follow me, your response, if it is a true effectual call, will be to follow after Jesus. This is good news. This is good news. Jesus, look at these men, these fishermen, and said, you can be like me. Do you see the significance here? Jesus isn't saying, man, I, just, I want you to learn something about me. Jesus isn't just saying, hey, I want you to memorize some passages because I guarantee you there were some better off Jewish boys in that village who probably had a lot more memorized than probably these guys. But he, he looks at the impossible and de deems that because of him and his sovereign grace and his cross and his future resurrection, that in those things, he looks at people who it does not make sense and he declares to them and calls them and imputes to them his righteousness, his love, his fellowship of God. And he says, guess what? I know it doesn't look like it. You don't have a very good skill set. And, and Peter, you talk a whole bunch. And John, you're kind of a pussy boy who talks about love a lot, but I want you to know this, you are both mine. Follow, follow after me, follow me. There is this scuffle later on in the Gospels, and I love Jesus because, again, I, I, I have a, a you know, hyper-imagination And, you know, I, I just picture Jesus, and again, this is the Eric Standard version, that Jesus is kind of sitting back, and he's letting these young disciples kind of squabble back and forth. And then finally, Jesus steps in, and he says, Don't forget, you didn't choose 
me. He tells us in John, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you. See, what was the, the practicing system? The practicing system is, is if you're good enough, smart enough, passionate enough, you went to the rabbi and you told that rabbi, hey, rabbi, I want to follow after you. Essentially, I'm choosing you. I want to follow after you. I'm the best of the best. I'm the cream of the crop. I am the all-star here. You need me on your team. I want to follow after you. What does Jesus do? He turns it on its head. His, his kingdom is different than the kingdom of this world. The way that Jesus thinks about money, about power, about politics, all these sorts of things, even though you have cut your teeth and I have cut my teeth on American philosophies, is not God's kingdom. He has his own kingdom, and he steps into that, and he says, man, this is the way the, the rabbis and the disciples have done it of old. This is the way that I'm going to do it. I'm not going to wait for people to seek after me. The Bible tells us that we don't seek after God. I'm going to come. I am going to seek. I am going to pursue. And I'm going to look at the least of these, and I'm going to look at them and pass their eyes into their hearts and into their souls. And I'm going to say, brother, sister, Follow after me. Follow after me. And immediately these brothers abandon their very way of living. Their jobs. Their family. You know, and honestly, I don't think Zebedee was freaking out that day. I think he probably went home that day and he was like, showed up, smelly, stinky. Mrs. Zebedee, she's like, where are the boys at? Where are they at? Well, honey, they, they won't be here tonight. What do you mean? What do you mean they won't be here? I made matzo bread. All right? What do you mean they won't be here? And probably there's a sense of maybe pride, righteous pride if that exists. As Zebedee looks at his wife and says our boys have been chosen what do you mean our boys have been chosen they're long gone out of the educational system Jesus the rabbi Jesus the ones that we've been starting to hear rumors about and gossiping about the one that has been spoken about that crazy man named John that he's he's here and he's 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 looked at our boys and he says follow after me, and they, they left me immediately, and they, they, they went, and they're now following after Jesus. They gave up everything. They gave up their comfort. They gave up their security. They, they gave up their job, their, their, their better paycheck. They, they gave up, you know, the potential of a, a, a better home to live in. They gave up all of those things. Why? At this moment, when Jesus says, follow after me, that is way more valuable than anything that this world has to offer. That's why we sing a hymn, take the world, but give me what? But give me Jesus. See, I would say to some degree, every one of us in this room are holding on to some sort of net. 
We're holding on to something, whether, again, that be that power, comfort, security, any of those things. We are holding on to our possessions. We are holding on to our, um, our, our security. We're, we're holding on to the way that we like things, the ease of life. We're holding on to these things, and we're saying, you know what, I, I, I want some Jesus, but I need this too. Like Linus in his blanket. I need this for my comfort. And this is not the cause of Christ. See, following after Jesus is a terrifying thing. It is a scary thing. It will make us to, to question things. It will make us wrestle with the, the way in which we spend every dollar that we are paid. It will make us look at our sanctuary, our homes as, as sanctuaries, not just for us, but also for others. It will make us look at our youth differently. It will make us look at our old age differently. It should make us look at our education differently. It should make us look at the way that we raise children and teach our kids. All of these things must be consumed with this idea of following after Jesus because the me there is very crucial. It is God. It's God. God looking at you. Don't think that you are summoned in any way by some preacher man here. If you're a follower of Jesus, it was because you were summoned by an almighty, sovereign, everlasting King of kings, Lord of lords, Prince of peace. All of these things encompassed into one. His name is God. And he says, follow me. And that me is everlasting and everlasting and everlasting. And yet for some reason in American Christianity, we're cool with the me, but we are not cool with the follow. And that, I think, is extremely frightening. Half of the U.S. claims to be Christian, yet there is nothing that reflects that in our lives or in many people's lives. This is confusing, and it's unbiblical. I love what David Platt says in this statement. He says this, Everything is different once you meet the king. That's why we know that people who possess to be... Uh, excuse me, <clears throat> profess to be Christians, but whose lives uh, look just like the rest of the world are lying. Many people claim to have made a decision, prayed a prayer, signed a card, walked an aisle, accepted Jesus into their hearts, but their lives don't look any different. These people say they are Christians, but, but the reality is, see, he likes that word too, is that they've never met Jesus, because when you do, everything changes. Notice after he said, follow me, what's he going to do? I will make you fishers of men. Who does the making? Jesus does. So not only is he going to say, follow me, but he's going to do something. He's not only give you a new life, but he's going to give you a new life to live currently. And I think one of the greatest deceptions in, in the Bible, because again, when we talk about this passage, you could be a good Jew and not be a disciple. Right? I mean, we've talked about that this morning. You got me? Do the Baptist nod. Yep, you got me? I mean, you see that. Is that the call of Jesus? 
Are there like, you know, barely scraping into heaven Christians and the, the super holy ones like Cynthia Llewellyn? They're disciples, right? I'm aspiring to be her, and so is Mike. We've talked about it, okay? <laughs> I mean, uh, that's a disciple, right? That's what we've made it in American Christianity, and yet that is not the biblical gospel. The biblical gospel is if you are saved, you are a disciple. We're not talking about converts here. We're not talking about people just scraping in, man, I hope I'm good enough, smart enough, good looking enough to make it into heaven. I've said enough prayers. I've been to enough church camps to hopefully make it. I've attended mission, eh, occasionally missional community. When all the planets are in line, I'll finally show up, and that's awesome. I mean, that, that hopefully, yeah. And then disciples are, you know, Billy Graham, Rick Warren. John Piper. That's not the call of the gospel. See, everyone that Jesus says, come follow me, guess what they are? Disciples. And the great American gospel deception is, is that in some way you can scrape into heaven and be covered by God's grace and mercy somehow by being a poser. See, when, when God calls, you will become. He does it. He works in their lives. There's transformation. Let me, let me get you. You need to get this. Ladies and gentlemen, your lives, if you truly are a disciple, if you've truly been saved, you can't earn that salvation. I just want you to understand this. If you have truly been saved, you are consumed with Jesus. Preachers shouldn't have to, we shouldn't have to beg each other to read each other's, to read the Bible, or to pray, or to live missionally, or to serve faithfully. That's what disciples do. And God hasn't called us to anything else but to worship Him, make disciples. Notice what He says in Matthew chapter 28, we'll get to that in like two years. He says, go and make disciples. Everything in your lives, there's nothing more important in your day, your, your, your Google calendar has nothing more important on it than your relationship with Jesus and all of your other activities for your family, for your personal life, for your job. All those things should reflect in it a primary focus on the person and work of Jesus. It should be spoken about regularly in our homes. We can't help but talk about it no matter what your job is. You can't help but talk about it. You're, you're a disciple. You're supposed to be disciple-making. And I know it's tough. It, man, it's, it's a wrestling process, Lord, Lord Jesus. Man, help, help me to, to, I want you to understand, I, I hope that I'm painting a picture here of the intimacy between rabbis and disciples and even how much further Jesus takes that with his, with his own disciples. It is not this, this stoic, hands-off, untouchable relationship. I mean, by the time we get to the Last Supper, they're pretty much laying on our Lord. I think that's pretty intimate. I tried to kiss Weasman last night, and he said, no, I am a man. <laughs> All right? <laughs> He's like, we don't do that. Right? But what does Jesus do by the last scene? Intimacy. 
he's stripping down to his whitey tidies. He, he, he is getting down on his hands and knees, and he is wiping and washing the feet of these disciples. Consumed. Intimacy. Though those brothers were, were major screw-ups in a variety of ways, and we'll see their ups and downs. There was something within them. It was the Holy Spirit. That even though they didn't understand, and even the scripture tells us, they did not get this until after the resurrection of Jesus. There was something in those men that caused them to leave everything. And if you think that was just for those brothers, then I encourage you to read and know the word of God. Radical abandonment. How much healthier would we be as an American church, all of us, when we'd realize, you know, there's really only one church in Bowling Green? There's one. It's his. When we all begin to realize, like, every bit of your salary, part of it isn't God's and the rest of it yours. Like, all of it is his. Like, your home just isn't for you and your 2.5 kids. But your home is a sanctuary for many. That your time isn't like I've got me time. And I'm not saying that there's never a point where you need to, to have some solitude. We see Jesus doing that. I, I need that. You need that. But a majority of time is spent where? In community. In community. It was not religiosity. It was not, and, and please hear me, there are lots of ways to teach people the word. And I, I'm all for fill in the blanks and, and discipleship programs. All those things are great. As long as you realize it is not simply so that you can gain and I can gain more information. It is so that we can gain intimacy with God and with the person we're doing that discipleship with. When I say I'm discipling somebody, I'm not discipling them and saying, come, follow me. Be like me. You can be me. No, we disciple beyond us to say, let's be like Jesus. This is what Jesus does. And that's done in a variety of things. But I want you to get this. True discipleship is not done in comfort. True discipleship is, is not flashy. True discipleship brings much pain and anguish and heartache and struggle and joy and happiness and laughter and friendship and family. we got to remove the Christian cliches and begin to truly live like this. Why? Because, ladies and gentlemen, we, we, we don't believe in once saved, always saved. We believe if you truly are saved, you will forever be saved. 
And that's a, a, a clarifying moment that we need to understand that, that we are, that have been exposed and been saved by Jesus and drawn to himself and been radically redeemed by his cross, by his blood, by his resurrection, are truly the body of Christ. We work together. We're in community with each other. We are the family of God. And his sheep know his name. They follow after him, and they will do so for all of eternity. May we not blame God for our lack of intimacy with him, though. Because he's given us every tool in the book. He has given us every invitation to come. To come, sit with me, dwell with me, live with me. And I'm going to show you a new kingdom. I'm going to show you a true and better king. I'm going to show you a different way of living. And yes, the world is going to be coming against that. And you're going to be going the opposite direction. But in the end, ladies and gentlemen, my children, as he would say, no, it is the best. I close with this. I, um, I only ugly cried one time when we were in Haiti. One time. We finally got news that um, it was going to happen. Like we were going to be able to, to go get Wiesman's and to, to bring him home with us. That there weren't going to be all these multiple trips down there again. There weren't going to be the, the headaches of the ups and downs of the possibilities and the wrestling with, with Jen and Todd. But that finally Wiesman's was like, we've done it. We're, I think by this day we were like 11 days in or something like that. 12 days in, something crazy. All the planets had in line, the United States government. God bless them. Finally said, this is going to happen. And so Todd and I decided, well, or Todd decided I was just goose. He was maverick. And so um, we got a vehicle and decided, or he decided, hey, we're going we're gonna to let Weesbins go to church. And we're gonna, we've gotten permission from the orphanage, and we're going to show up at church, experience church with them, and um, see them, and, and then we're going to get to leave. And, and so it, it was beautiful. The, the director, she got up there, and um, you know, she had been preaching, and they were singing and all this sort of stuff, and they, uh, they told Weesbins and told the rest of the kids that Weesman's was finally going to get to go home with, with Todd. And uh, they brought Weesman's up front and Todd up front, and um, they all brought the, the young boys, these teenagers up front, and they're all laying hands on Weesman's and on Todd, and, and they're all praying for him, a prayer of blessing, and all hugging on him and everything. And then we, we exit out, and we go with the director, and, and she tells us, you know, it's all good. This is beautiful. She's in tears. You know, we're, uh, we love Weesbins and, and all those sorts of things. And so it came time for us to leave. And we're standing up close to, to where the gate is for us to leave. And, and so Todd and I, we both asked Weesbins, hey, you know, is, is, there, is there anything at your room? Is there anything back in your room where he's lived since he was eight years old, is there anything that you really want? 
He's like, no, leave. Let's go. All right? And I, I got to thinking about that. And that's when the ugly cry began to ensue. Because that is the story of every one of us. In regards to a spiritual sense. That, that we have all, because of sin, been separated from God. We are illegitimate, been placed outside of, of our, our, our camp where God dwells. And we are removed from the garden because of our sin. And this is, man, in this world, since the fall, this is where we've dwelled. We don't know any different. In, in a similar way, maybe we don't, we don't know exactly what lays behind those walls. And is everything behind those walls great? And, and, and awesome? No. But I get to, I get to think about that and looking at, at, at that situation and, and, and thinking about this passage, actually, when, when Jesus says in a very similar way, Todd's looking at Wiesman, he's like, hey, come follow me. And, and, and Wiesman's like, you know, do you want to get anything? No. Let's go. Let's go. And I've got tons of pictures I'll eventually show you of Weesbin and all three of us looking out the gate, waiting for our ride to get there. It seemed like it was forever as we waited for our ride to come back and get us. But, but just this idea, I want you to get this morning, that when Jesus says, come and to follow after me, when you compare what Jesus has to offer you, no matter if you have all the riches in the world, when you compare eternal life with Jesus, and even if you are, are, are a bazillionaire, when you compare those things to the riches of God, and you truly see them, they become as, as Paul would later say, as dunk in comparison to God's mercy and grace on you and I's life. So you drop the net. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever you're holding on to, Eric Baker, whatever you're holding on to this morning, what it would mean for Mission Church to live as a community of faith centered on God's word, valuing the importance of community, truly following after Jesus, and relinquishing our hands of the nets. And following after Him. can't separate Christianity from discipleship. You can't separate discipleship from mission. Those who have truly been saved are all of those things. And they live in radical abandonment, consumed. Wake up thinking about Jesus, going to bed thinking about Jesus, and when they're not thinking about Jesus or they haven't woken up thinking that way, they think, God, help me to think about you more. Help me to dwell on you more. Help me to read your word more. Help me to pray more. Help me to share the, the gospel more because I want to I wanna be in it. I want to I know God in an intimate fashion. Even Jesus looked at these disciples, these teenage boys, and said, you know, I call you friends. Like, that kind of intimacy. Walk with, talk with, to be covered in the, 
the dust of the rabbi Jesus sitting at his feet, laying my head upon his shoulders in an intimate relationship with him. Because I think that's what he calls us to. That's what he desires of us. And he has given us the tools to achieve that. So this morning, let go of your nets. Let go of what you're holding on to. It's not promising an easy ride. These dudes died for this. They had no place to lay their head. They had to get money out of fish's mouth. Didn't know where they were going. Caught at sea. Left for dead, some of them. It was worth it. Because they understood who the me was. And followed me. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. We thank you for this opportunity. Pray in some way that you've been glorified, that you've been honored. Lord, I'm so thankful because I would have never been chosen by those rabbis. But Lord, I'm thankful in my own story that you saw fit. Call me by name. Call us to save us. And Lord, that we are projects at work this side of heaven. But you are unlike me. You are patient. You are unlike me. You're a good teacher, perfect teacher. Unlike me, my words can be fallible, Lord, you and your words are infallible. So, Lord, I pray, God, that in this room right now, Jesus, that there would truly be an evaluation of our hearts. Lord, I pray, Lord, that if there have been people here, God, that have just been cultural Christians trying to hold on to the world and to you, Jesus, Lord, I, I pray that you would truly save them. And Lord, in that salvation, as your word even sh shares and as you preach, that you have called them to repentance and to the newness of life. So Lord, I pray that if somebody's here today that truly isn't saved, I pray that you would save them. Lord, I pray for the brother and sister in Christ, God, who's wrestling, who's struggling who's clenching tightly money, power, prestige, holding on to a house, holding on to a vehicle, holding on to a child, holding on to a, a spouse, maybe that all these things have become gods in their lives. It's become what they daily are immersed in. Lord Jesus, I pray that today immediately you drop the nets for a college student Lord that's wrestling with the mission field drop the nets for the family who's considering a adoption or foster care drop the nets for for all of us God here just 
Lord, saturate us once again with your presence. Call us to the newness. Give us the, the strength and the spirit enough to obey even when things are extremely tough. We love you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Stand with us.